Welcome to the Law Spot Podcast with your host, Melissa Gray. Join her as she highlights legal professionals and trending legal issues facing entrepreneurs and small business owners. Ready to dive into life and law? You're in the right spot. Welcome back, everyone, to the Law Spot. I'm very excited about our guest today, Miss Cassie Burns, a senior attorney in King Spalding's eDiscovery practice. She is on the cutting edge of all things emerging tech, talks about NFTs, crypto, um, Web3, and all things eDiscovery. So please let me introduce you to Cassie. Well, thank you, Melissa. I appreciate that intro very much. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, we're happy to have you. I know that you uh, you actually also have a podcast on Fridays with um, your colleagues on eDiscovery, and it's really interesting. Um, so if, if you get a chance, check it out. But to start, would you mind just sharing with our listeners how you, uh, your background and how you got into eDiscovery? Um, and where you are today. Yes, I will. It's been a journey. I will definitely say it's had its hills, it's had its valleys, it's had its crevasses. Um, but here I am today, King and Spalding. Um, you know, I started my career back in 2006. I just graduated from law school, Tulane Law School, had my last year of law school when Hurricane Katrina hit. So that was like my first rumbling that this is gonna be a bumpy ride. Um, and I ended up getting a job right out of law school, working in-house for a company, doing exactly what I knew I wanted to do. I really wanted to practice intellectual property like you. I wanted to do trademark and copyright law. And I found my way working for a startup franchise company based in New Orleans. Um, which is where I was able to get exposed to things like trademarks and copyrights because like those are very core elements to a franchise business. Well, I ended up being literally the last employee because it ended up going into bankruptcy, into liquidation, and um, really was a very stressful, and there's more to that. There's not enough time in this podcast right now to go into all of that, but I found myself in 2008, which was a very hard time to be looking for a job, um, needing to, to just make some money because I was literally the last employee, right? And someone, his name is Scott Bruce in the Dallas area, reached out to me via career builder and said, hey, and I was still in New Orleans at this time and said, hey, if you can come to Dallas, like right now, I'll have a, a job for you on a doc review project. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. I, I'm originally from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. It got me close to home. I didn't have to be barred in Texas. I, I was originally barred in Arkansas because of the Hurricane Katrina thing. Again, another great story for another time. Um, and just was a doc review attorney. And honestly, I loved it because I knew I was getting paid every week. And it was very stress-free compared to what I had been experiencing the past two years. Um, so I did it and I did a good job of it. Very interesting cases, trademark cases. So it caught my fancy, um, but I was very interested in the technology around just the doc review because I started getting involved in, in doc review, document review for litigation, right whenever things like email threading were starting to be used and, and technology assisted review, the first iteration of it, you know, 
were first being mm -hmm. used and and I knew that I needed to follow the technology. So I started as a doc review attorney, got promoted as, at a certain point to be an assistant manager and then a manager of ultimately over 200 attorneys managing like huge litigation, helping all the way to trial. And I really liked the logic behind it, the logic, the technology and how that intersects with the actual forward momentum of a case. Um, and because I knew I always wanted to follow technology, I knew I wanted to work on the vendor side for a while because I knew that that's how I would really learn the technology. So a vendor that we worked with on one of my big projects, um, they ended up hiring me to be a manager of their lit support department, which is kind of crazy because I, I knew I had a natural inclination for understanding just kind of like the architecture of the technology, but I didn't know how to do all of it myself. I just kind of was like, I know you can do this. And I know you can't do that. But I was also mm -hmm. good at managing people. And that's really what they wanted was a good manager, a good, good project manager, because a, a, a good manager of any department of whether you're an attorney managing or you're, you're a tech person managing, having those project management skills are just really a huge soft skill that people don't talk about. So spent five years working there in the DC area, really got my tech chops big time, really had to learn to be comfortable with maybe not being the smartest person in the room, but being okay with that and knowing when to like pull in the right people and when, yeah, I need to handle this. Um, went from there, moved back here, worked for another service provider, being more client-based and engaging and realized I really like working with clients. I was kind of behind the scenes managing people. I got back managing directly with cases and clients and then eventually made my way to King and Spalding, which is where I am now. And I've been there for a year and a half uh, working in the Discovery Center um, and, you know, being able to do things that I wasn't able to do on the service provider side because I am on the firm side. So being able to help with motion practice and things like that. So it has definitely come full circle in a way, you know, if I had told myself in 2007, 2008, that this is where I would be, would not have believed it. And I really love my career right now. I, I love doing what I'm doing. I love data. I love the technical side of things, but I also like the legal side of it. So I'm never bored ever. And I'm constantly working because I, I want to, it's not because it's not something I dread every like Monday. I'm like, yeah, let's go, let's get going. So um, to anyone who's out there who's really at a low spot, that low spot is valid. Trust me, I had times in my life where it was rough and I really regretted going to law school. But I'm so happy I am where I am now because that going through the trenches like I did, it gives me the skill set I have now I would never have had before. So it's definitely a journey. Well, it's good. Thing, and to mention soft skills, uh, it, they're grossly underestimated in the legal profession. So to be able to manage people and follow your strengths and then ultimately find something that you're passionate about is just a, I, I wanted people to hear that because I think it's not every path has to be linear uh, right. for, for where you get to where you are. And now having practiced, you know, 13, 14 years, uh, what does your day-to-day -day look like and, you know, what keeps you motivated and not dreading Monday mornings? Yeah, so it can vary a lot. I think, you know, for most attorneys, it's fairly, I would imagine, not un unusual to have a very, you know, what typical day, but it's not uncommon for me to, you know, again, be helping more than I did ever before with motion practice. So if there's ever any sort of, um, 
you know, motion to compel, motion for sanctions, or even earlier on, you know, negotiating ESI protocols, protective orders, um, meet and confer, draft response letters, things like that. Like I'm very heavily involved with that. So I'm able to like write a lot more than maybe I did before when I was working on the service provider side. I'm still in databases, you know, running searches, checking on how things are going, helping set things up. Sometimes I'm on smaller projects and more intimately involved. And sometimes I'm at a higher level and able to bring in other people and that also gives me an opportunity to kind of show my skills to other some of my colleagues in the law firm. I just have more of the technical skills because I worked on the service provider side. So it gives me an opportunity to kind of share that knowledge with other people. Um, because at the end of the day, the more you understand like why this works that way, it makes you better able to troubleshoot and problem solve. Um, so yeah, just sometimes I'm in the day, I'm in the database getting my hands dirty with the data. Um, a lot of thought leadership, you know, I really think it's important to, you know, there's a lot of forward momentum going on with emerging technology. So kind of keeping my eye out there, you know, making clients aware of it, you know, seeing what the new case laws are that are out there, um, making recommendations to clients just on, on their standard operating procedures on how things might need to get updated. Um, so it runs the gamut of what I do. Well, so you see a lot. You've been in it since, you know, email threads, so emerging technologies, and, and then we're at the forefront now with AI and, and everything that's happening in that space. So tell us um, what you're seeing and how people that are practicing today can stay, uh, you know, apprised of what's going on, but also be aware so they can advise their clients better, uh, regardless of their practice areas, because some of the stuff that's coming down the pipe is, is somewhat concerning, but also just because they don't know what it is, is even more, you know, daunting or, or could cause people to pause. Right. And I'm going to, so I'm going to talk about two different categories. I'm going to talk about things that are currently flowing through the courts that we, it's tech we've been dealing with, with 10 or so years. And then I'll, I'll kind of touch on the emerging tech that we need to be aware of that we'll be dealing with in the next five plus years. So the most immediate thing that we're dealing with in, you know, discovery is mobile data, which mobile data we've had in, you know, prolific way for quite a while. But whenever I worked on the service provider side, it was before COVID and it wasn't that common when parties would ask for mobile data. I think it was kind of like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I won't ask for yours if you won't ask for mine. Um, and I think people would say, you know, we have policies in place and our, our employees don't use it for per professional use, whatever. COVID, that kind of like wiped it all out. And now like, I don't see a case where you're not asking for text messages and Teams data and, you know, Slack and, T and Zoom, all, all of that. And that's very challenging data to preserve, collect, review, produce. It's challenging from a technical perspective. It's challenging from a legal perspective of where do you draw the line of what's relevant and not relevant. You know, when, when a thread, you may respond with emojis and GIFs, you know, so what do you, I need to produce the GIF or not? I don't know. Um, so that element is challenging. And I think there are some companies who aren't aware and maybe some attorneys who aren't aware there has been a temperature in the courts where we're seeing more and more spoliation claims 
being brought against other parties and the courts bringing sanctions against them because they're not properly preserving data. Um, and that can unfortunately have a significant impact to the outcome of the case. So if you're not sufficiently preserving that data and there's a potential for spoliation, depending on like the facts around that incident, a court, a judge could say, you know what, I'm gonna enter a default judgment on, on the other side, or I'm going to, you know, give an adverse inference, or I'm gonna like bring a, a fine against you and the attorney, and maybe the attorney might have to go to ethics class. You know, I mean, so courts are really, you know, drawing a pretty hard line and really expecting people to be on top of this. So if it's something that comes up in court, you're nearly behind the ball. You really need to be aware of what data sources your clients may be using and what obligations there are to preserve that data. So that's just a huge one that people need to be aware of as far as like current old tech that's now currently in the courts. So if you're going to uh, counsel maybe our in-house colleagues on on this um, request for mobile data in a litigation context, what can they do today to, or what should they audit internally to make sure that they're making it as easy as they can to, um, you know, not get hit with a spoliation claim and preserve that for um, in a litigation context? I think it's really taking the time to review those standard operating procedures that hopefully exist regarding, you know, your, your retention policies, your bring your own device or, you know, company provided phone policies, your, your collection policies, if you're doing that in-house or, or you're leveraging a vendor, I think it's just being aware that this is going to be something you need to get your arms wrapped around. You know, are you updating your hold notice language? Like, does your hold notice sufficiently address that? Does your questionnaire that goes out sufficiently address that? Um, what systems do you have in place that have auto deletion features? And if you are using a system with auto deletion features, can you toggle that off? And if you can't, you need to know that so you can tell your employees you can't use this in the context of these discussions because um, that will get you in trouble. You can't just say, well, you know what? To this app, I can't turn it off. The court, there's been case law that say you have to use a different mechanism to communicate. Like just saying, I can't use it. Like I can't turn it off isn't good enough. So I think just being aware of that, doing that audit, doing that review, it's probably been like five or so years since you've done a review of your operating procedures. This is a really good time, you know, to do it now. And then also think, think about how you maybe want to address some other emerging tech things like using generative AI. But I think it really is important to get your arms wrapped around what your employees are really using um and making sure those policies and procedures around preservation collection are there and also being aware of privacy issues you know if you have if you're a company that has employees in california there are emerging privacy laws that are coming out there where if there's a bring your own device policy by the company and you want to collect an employee's data and they're in california you know there's consent steps that have to be taken so you know just being aware that there is a changing landscape going on out there and i know sometimes sops are not the funnest thing in the world to review and update but this is really a perfect time to get that under control so 
you know, you can say, you know what, this is solid footing and you don't want to have to be dealing with it in a motion to compel, you know? Uh, a few things uh, when I was in-house, there were employees that retained emails for, you know, 12, 13 years. And so recognizing in a litigation context that someone is going to get that entire thing and mm -hmm. Uh, these new tools, like you mentioned, I just want to reiterate those, like Slack and internal apps that you might not think could you know, warrant uh, a litigation hold. They are communications within your company that are likely going to be discoverable. So uh, the retention policies on all of those things, that's a really good point that you know, just dust those off. And to the extent you can have some sort of auto archive or auto delete, it's actually mm -hmm. in your company's best interest to do that. It cuts yeah, down on your costs too. Right. The data disposition, I think is very important. That's a great point. You know, you know, look at your, your data retention policies. And as long as there's not a federal regulatory or, you know, uh, litigation requirement to hold on to data and that time has passed, you want to defensively delete that and not have that on for multiple reasons. You know, the costs associated with it. And it's really frustrating whenever data gets brought into litigation that could have been deleted, but it just wasn't done. You know, and I think we're always forward looking. We don't all, we're not really that good auditing, looking back and seeing what we can, we, we like creating data and moving on. But it really is in your best interest to defensively defensively delete that data when possible because it it just saves volume and time down the road. So I think that's an excellent point, Melissa. Okay, so that's what people can do today with what's going on. What do we need to know that you're uh, about emerging text maybe today in the next five years? with this slurry of, of new technologies, ChatGPT, Jasper, all of the metaverse, mm -hmm. what are you seeing? And uh, maybe give us like your assessment of the landscape and then what we can expect in the next five, 10 years. Yeah, you know, I think emerging tech is a very broad bucket and there are a lot of technologies that I would say fall under it. You know, some of it are maybe not as emerging and they've been around a little bit longer, like blockchain. So that would be Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um, we're also seeing, I think, more specifically in the past three months or so, generative AI has really entered the chat. I mean, they've like rolled in pretty hard and it's getting a lot of attention. There's a lot of companies springing up a lot of apps springing up that's using generative at uh, generative ai chat gpt being the most probably talked about and really what that is it is chat gpt uses large language models um i think the most current version is up to like maybe Jan it has data source from up to january 2023 i think um and it uses natural language processing uh, to give an output. So you can ask a question like you're talking me to you, like, mm -hmm. hey, Melissa, what are five interesting facts about, you know, copyright law? And it, it'll give you that output. And then you could say, oh, but, you know, can you rewrite that to make it search engine optimized, you know? So so it is, it's, it's refining its answer. It's under, you don't have to know a special search syntax or Python code to get the output you want. You can really just, engage in it very simply. Um, 
And then what it's doing is it's learning over time and it's refining its output based off of the input that you give it. So um, it, that in and of itself, that generative AI, which is sometimes text and sometimes image based, um, it's really gotten much more advanced in just the past six months. And, you know, I think what that's going to do is create authentication issues in courts. So, you know, part of that is deep fake technology where I think we've all seen videos of someone acting like Tom Cruise and it really looks like Tom Cruise, but it's not. And I think it just came out in the news that Drake and The Weeknd, someone used scraped audio and visuals of them to create music in the style of them. So that creates a bunch of issues, as you know, in the trademark copyright space, it creates a lot of issues. In the court case, just think of what would, what would happen if someone creative created evidence, fake evidence using generative AI. What sort of metadata, how are we gonna track that? What, what are we gonna do to know whether or not that authentically came from my phone or not, or that is authentically a picture of me or not, or that is authentically, that is actually a video of me saying these things. Um, and then even, you know, ChatGPT is going to be integrated with Microsoft 365. So you can actually enter prompts at some point in Word, you'll be able to say, you know, pull this information, pull that information and write me a summary. Well, who's the author at that point? And when that person has written something using that technology and maybe that document is used in court and they're, they're under cross-examination, what's their ability to just say, that wasn't me, that was ChatGPT, you know, like, so what artifacts will there be to the underlying technology for us to know what portion of that text did I draft and what portion of it was auto-generated based off of a prompt that I entered? And what was that prompt? So I think it'll create a lot more like technical points of authentication in courts that we are, we're starting to see a little bit, you know, last year, the, the Johnny Depp, uh, Amber Heard case had, you know, photographic evidence was a huge deal. And, and there was an expert that came on that said some of her images were fake, you know, the metadata relate, I think it was the date metadata was fake. So we're going to see that just with the actual image itself. Um, not that, it, you know, you can still Photoshop now you've been able to Photoshop a while, but I think it is so much easier now that it's going to, I think, you know, digital forensic experts are probably going to be very much in demand. Um, like I think copyright and trademark attorneys are going to be in demand. There's just a lot of interesting, challenging issues that we're going to have to deal with that you just can't take for granted. So, um, you know, that's one thing, but then even kind of maybe on, um, you know, the other end of the spectrum, blockchain and cryptocurrencies, you know, if you're an attorney, you think, oh, that's kind of, I'm a trust and estates attorney. I don't need to know about that, right? Uh, it's it's a it's scam stuff. Well, it's really important to understand how digital assets are usually held. Usually, they're held in a wallet, a cold wallet or a, or a hot wallet. And really, what that is is it's a, a remote, like external hard drive, in very simple terms, or it's an app on online and the cold version is the one that's further removed from bad actors and the hot version is the one that's online well to access my wallet i don't log in with my username and password you have to know your seed phrase that was you that was auto-generated 
when you set that wallet up. And it is usually like a 12 or 16 word phrase. And if you lose that seed phrase, you're never accessing that wallet. It's gone. It's a brick, you know? So if you're a trust and estate attorney and you're not talking to your clients about, you know, do you have digital assets? Where are they stored? Where is your seed phrase stored? I know people in this space where once they get a wallet, they get a metal bar and they engrave the seed phrases into a metal bar and then they go and they put it in a safety deposit box in the bank because that is the most secure way to do that, you know? So, you know, being aware of those things or even being aware of the vitality of cryptocurrencies. If, you, if you're a family law attorney and you have a client where your your client is like, hey, I, I invested early in Bitcoin or in Ethereum and I want all of the I want all the crypto assets and I'm gonna let my my spouse get everything else and that goes upside down. Like there was I saw some discourse on Twitter where a guy did that and did it right before, you know, a lot of the prices fell and he was just like, I lost so much of my assets and there's nothing you can do about it at that point. So I think just because you don't think it's going to be successful or you think it might be scammy, you still need to be aware of it and be able to properly advise clients about it. That's a great example on the on the family law and trust and estates piece, because even if it's not relevant to your practice area, it's still relevant to your practice area. And that right. goes to the contract space as well. So any transaction, we need to be thinking about what the emerging tech is and how those clauses are being impacted with it. So what have you seen from a, like a contract review standpoint on how people are starting to integrate that? Um, and then I'll share what I've, what I've observed. Yeah, I have a good friend who is a transactional attorney. She works in-house for, you know, a, a company that has a lot of very nice properties. And engaging in a contract and the other side wanted to, like, snuck in language that gave themselves rights to record video of, of the likeness of the properties to then use in augmented reality or virtual reality. Now, my friend, of course, like, struck that out. but. You know, hopefully any good contract attorney is keeping an eye for all language. You know, they're not just an autopilot, but just be aware of what that you may be giving away or even an individual. If you're if you're engaging in a contract and, and you're, you know, maybe it's even something as simple as you're getting headshots. Like you want to make sure how those images are being used. If someone's an influencer out there, influencer marketing is huge, you know. What, what are you giving away? Are you giving all future rights to your likeness away in that kind of a contract? So again, it may not be something that's important to you, but it may be important to other people. And it doesn't mean people may try to broaden what rights they're giving themselves in the contracts. So what are what is going on today in this space because I can see this being used in a lot of nefarious ways by bad actors. You know, they're stealing your image, they're presenting it to your family for a ransom demand, or they're recording your voice. Someone could emulate even mine on this podcast, or, you know, Tom Cruise's or Drake had a whole song generated. So what what's going on today from a, a um, regulation standpoint, or, or what, what can we see 
come down on how to protect ourselves and businesses as we sort of navigate this new path? I mean, I think of my friend, Jerry, who I do have a, a podcast with. He's a digital forensics expert and our, our podcast is All Your Data, if you want to check it out. Um, but he's talked about having, you know, kind of like a passcode with his family. So if someone randomly, if he randomly calls, it's not him. It's a synthetic version of him. They know to ask a question. And if that other side doesn't know how to answer, it's probably not him. You know, it's very much like giving Blade Runner replicant testing vibes, right? So I think, and I think, you know, he was very concerned about his wife and his children. I had the opposite concern. My parents live with me, you know, my husband and I, we don't have kids, but my, my parents are our kids. But it's not uncommon for, you know, people committing fraud to target older people. And I think just like explaining that to people, like if I randomly call you asking for money, that's not ever going to be me, you know? So I think being a, aware of that, I think if you're using, you want to play around with ChatGPT or those other tools, A, first make sure it's, if you're using your company device, it's not in violation of a policy, you know, corporate policy, but also be aware what information you're feeding in as your prompt, what your input is. Um, because usually I think if it's okay, if you're just going online and engaging with it, that information is being retained as, you know, training data. So you definitely don't want to be sharing anything proprietary. You don't want to be sharing anything privileged or confidential because that's just kind of like going out there to company and you don't know what's going to happen with it. So I think just being aware, just because you're entering information in a website, it, on a work computer, it doesn't mean that it's protected by whomever receives the data. So I think that's very important. And we're seeing European countries are kind of paying attention to some of these tools. Italy has come out and said, hey, ChatGPT, we don't want you being active here because we need a little bit, we need more transparency about, you know, where your data sources come from. We need more transparency. We need to know that you're accurately screening your users to make sure they're adults. We need to make sure that the output accurately reflects people's information. Um, and then there's a European data privacy and security board that's looking into it. So, you know, I think that kind of taps into broader discussions of AI ethics um, and how all we, you know, all these big fun tools are being, you know, blown out there and being available, but what sort of regulatory use will there or discussions will there be around it? You know, whether it's the training data, was it ethically sourced? You know, we're seeing, again, I'm sure you know, trademark, copyright, infringement issues, you know, did you scrape copyright protected information? Um, so being aware of that, but also being aware on the flip side of copyright and patents, you know, if you get an output from one of those systems, it's probably not gonna get protected by copyright or patent law, right? I mean, because there's no human, you know, what what is the element of the human, you know, input that led to the creation of the work? So I think just being aware of those issues and being thoughtful, like if you're wanting to write something that you really want copyright protection on, don't take a shortcut because, you know, it it you may run into problems. And I would love to hear your thoughts on it. I mean, I just imagine there's going to be a wellspring of in copyright disputes, a lot of authentication of did that person yeah. actually create that all on their own, you know? So I think that that's all going to be very interesting. Yeah, the copyright office is, uh, has considered it essentially like they've denied an 
a, a completely AI generated uh, work, copyright protection. But there is still an open question of how much human authorship has to go in in order to warrant it. But in that in that case, he was actually filing on behalf of like the AI. So it was it was an interesting one. But it, it's it's coming. There's there's a actually the USPTO has issued um, some open uh, forums about it, so they can they can have some more discussions about mm-hmm. what people want to see and how that's going to be impacted, and even on the being proactive about filing if you're if you're in house and you can see your products being used in a digital space, a lot of luxury retailers and um, mm-hmm. in the fashion industry in particular, but even to your point, like it, okay, let's say you have a look and feel of a golf course or, or some sort of virtual space where in a contract you said that person could use it. Well then, okay, do you really want something in the metaverse to look like what is a, a trademark of your mm-hmm. business in another space? So f- being proactive about filing in those those digital classes um, is a message that, that sort of we're putting out there. But also just don't use chat GPT to draft things at the moment unless you're sure, especially on the copywriter side, like if you are looking for authorship, um, that's, that's probably not a good way to go, especially if you don't know where it came from. But right, right. You know, and I think I think that's the other thing is the authentication. You know, if you I mean, I'm playing around with it on my personal computer, not my work one. Sure. But, you know, for me, a lot of it, some of it playing around with it, some of it, you know, a lot of people who write have a problem with the blank page. So if it can kickstart your thought, pro- like get an outline and that can kind of get you going. And I used it kind of like, I just want to see what the output is and it's easy content. And I, I'm just losing in my captions when I do use it because I just want to be transparent about that. But I made sure to Google everything that I did. You know, I, I validated everything before I shared it because, you know, it would be interesting. You know, I think that that, that it would be interesting. And um, in eDiscovery, we use machine learning all the time and we use advanced analytics, uh, AI in an adversarial setting. So we're very much keyed in on how rich is our data set? Um, is it robust enough? How 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 was our sampling, you know, our to, to like kick off the, you know, our, our initial set of data that we reviewed that kind of kicks off the algorithm and, you know, testing and validating the results and, and, and making sure you're hitting sufficient stabilization. Um, I, I would love, and there's like a rank of, you know, how how relevant is it, you know? So it nearly would love to see a similar type of metric tied to it, or, you know, a link back maybe to the underlying data source. I mean, I don't know if they're probably, you know, they don't want to disclose that information, I'm sure, because they probably maybe give too much away. But I think like that level of transparency is, would be really important, you know, because I think in the short term, it may create a lot of easy content, a lot of you be able to kickstart a lot of things. But if people aren't validating it, it's like when you compress a file and you compress it and you compress it and you compress it, like there's a level of degradation that happens to the quality of the file. So if you're, you know, there's one generative AI tool or some multiple out there that are used to validate and write code. Well, that may not be the best code, though. 
So if we're, we're continuously like building our software systems off of code that maybe not be optimized or validated, it's like what's going to happen to the integrity of these systems over time. So, you know, I think that using it to maybe kickstart or do repeated work or, or, you know, I think there's a lot of value to it, but I think we have to be realistic of just because a computer does it doesn't mean it's always right. And it, it requires people with skill and aptitude to really manage that and make sure the output is what you're expecting and refine it and tweak it over time. Right. So if, if someone wants to learn more about, uh, you're big on your book a week, right? What's your, yeah. what's in your, what's on your bedside? What are you reading uh, about emerging tech? So I, I feel really bad. I don't have the book in front of me. And uh, the book is about digital content creators and like the opportunity that we're kind of on the cusp of, of potentially kind of a renaissance of independent artists using digital assets. And the author is, oh my gosh, I think his name is Ed Lee. I can't remember, I feel so bad. I should have been more prepared. I'll put it in the show, I'll put it in the show notes, but yeah, it, yeah. I love that you give those recommendations to people um, on LinkedIn and, and you always have um, educational things that you sort of push. So where can people find you and uh, follow you know, the latest on, on e-discovery and emerging tech? Well, you can, I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. So my personal LinkedIn account, which Cassie Burns, um, and then I have a few kind of professional like side accounts that I manage haha, in my free time. Um, I have an e-discovery focused account called e-discoverist where I just kind of like try to get about a few tidbits of information and then also the all your data podcast. And we have some content that we create around it, but it's largely, largely driven on how much free time we have, which, or I have, which varies from week to week. So, um, yeah. Well, um, thank you for devoting some of that time to me. Uh, I know that people will find value in, um, these topics and, I look forward to seeing what you do next on LinkedIn because they're always super fun posts, but I will link that book in the show notes. Cassie, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you.